Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. And this is Dimity McDowell. And uh, we got a bonus episode going here, Sarah, don't we? We do, we do, because we have a Mother Runner of the Month who just seems so extraordinary that we wanted to really focus in on her and talk more with her. So I'll let you introduce her, Dim. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got her answers um, to my questions over email, and um, she's a writer to begin with, so then um, can tell a great story and then has a lot of stories to tell. So um, her name is Rachel Pye Jones. She's a native Minnesotan, like I said, a writer and a mother of three who has lived for 15 years in Djibouti, Djibouti, which is on the Horn of Africa. Um, in addition to starting an international school with her husband, uh, she started a running program for girls there and has plenty of running adventures of her own to share. Um, and as Sarah said, Rachel was our mother runner of the month in April. So welcome, Rachel, from across the Atlantic. Yeah, thanks. It's so good to be here. So, so Rachel, tell folks how you landed in Djibouti with your um, family of three, family of three kids, that is. Yeah, well, it was kind of an accident to start with. Um, we moved to Africa in 2003 with intentions to live in Somalia. And that's where we went at first. My husband was a professor at, at the time, the only functioning English-speaking university in Somalia. It was in the north, and um, at that time, things were relatively peaceful. And so we moved there um, and thought we'd stay for a while. We weren't sure how long. But after a year, even less than a year, just nine months, um, there ended up being some violence and we were forced to evacuate with just 30 minutes to throw things into a bag and throw the twins. We had two-year-old twins at the time, throw them into the car and fled and left the country. And um, we knew that we weren't quite ready to leave the continent yet. Uh, we really wanted to keep developing our um, ability and teaching and our cultural competency. And we just felt like we had only dipped our toes into that experience. And so through some Somali friends and connections at that university, um, my husband was offered a job here in Djibouti, which is just across the border from Somaliland. And uh, so in 2004, we moved here. So we like to say that it was by accident, but then we just keep on staying. And now it's been 15 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, tell us before we go too far. So those, those boy-girl twins are no longer two. Tell us how old your three kids are. <laughs> yeah, uh, they are 18. The twins are 18, which is mind-blowing to me. Um, they are at university in the United States, so they're on your side of the ocean. And oh then, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, we had, I, I had our third child here in Djibouti on September 11th, 2005. So she is 13. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a, that's a lot. That's a, that, that's a lot of, uh, that's some history, right? And so, I mean, and so where, how is it to have kids halfway around the world after you've had them so close to you for 18 years? It is hard. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It's really amazing to watch them start to thrive at university. But when I was pregnant, people told me twins are going to be super hard for about two to five years. But nobody told me that twins were going to be super hard when they graduated at the same time. And that your heart <laughs> would just break for double, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have boy girl twins as well. So yeah. uh, twin, twin powers activate, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and so, and so you landed in Djibouti, you weren't a runner then. So tell us a little bit about how you got into running. I was not a runner. That's true. I did some aerobics, but nothing serious, but we had, um, a young woman come here to work at the university with my husband. She was an American and she had just run a university in the United States, or, sorry, a marathon in the United States. And, um, 
wanted to keep running here, but she asked me, hey, is it safe to run in Djibouti for a woman by herself? And I had no idea. So I said, I don't know, but you should probably go with someone just to make sure, you know, the first few times. And she said, well, I'm going running and you're my boss and have to, you know, you're responsible for my safety. So you better come with me. <laughs> and, the tables uh, were turned. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I was like, oh man, okay, I guess I can try this. I didn't have good shoes. I didn't have good clothes. But we went out. Our first run was maybe a mile, mile and a half. And I just about died. I couldn't, I hardly could finish and just thought it was torture. But uh loved spending time with her so much. She was just this dynamic, really fun, interesting person. And so I kept running just to be with her. And um, that friendship grew and the running grew longer. And through another woman here, another American, um, she told me about a race, a 15K race out in the desert called the Grand Barra 15K. It made it sound so awesome that I just couldn't refuse participating. And then I got hooked on this whole thing of training and the relationships and the, the inner drive to excel and beat my last time. So I really fell in love with it. Well, and so educate us a little bit, paint us a picture because I see 15K running across the desert. So first of all, talk, talk about the starting, the, the starter's pistol, and I put that in quotation marks. But then also just, are you just running for like nine miles just straight across the sand? I mean, that's, that's how I have it in my head. So tell us about it. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, I'm glad I had that accurate. <laughs> yeah, so basically, well, the start is um, just at the kind of foothills of these low mountains and it's sponsored by the French military. And so there's about, this is the biggest race in Djibouti by far. Most races in town have 10 to 20 people. This one has about 1500 people, um, maybe even up to hundred women. And you all line up at the front and then the, instead of having a starter's pistol, the start is actually these two French fighter jets that come zooming down right at sunrise over the mountains and they're they fly so low that there's this like shattering boom and your whole body shakes and your heart just explodes and you start running and uh, everyone kind of shouts and then you run straight just straight for 9.3 miles and there's some white whitewashed rocks that kind of line the path it's hard sand so it's not soft sand and it's mm -hmm. and it's straight and then you get to the end and you better have arranged a ride back to the start where your car is, or you're going to have to go all the way back. That's what I was just going to say. They don't have shuttles back to the start is my guess. And do they have like, uh, like, do they have like bananas or chocolate milk or anything at the end of those races? <laughs> they do actually at this one. They had oranges. They had some water. They have t-shirts even. Um, oh, okay. I always had my husband and my kids were kind of my support crew. So they would drive along the side and then they would drive, oh my goodness. you know, from there we'd come back to town. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Hey, and I think we need to back up a little bit because, you know, okay, so, so Dimity said that Djibouti is on the Horn of Africa. You know, that, that my geography is a little sketch. Like, tell us a little bit about the country of Djibouti that I assume Djibouti itself is the capital of that same named country. Um, you know, and like how many people live there, you know, kind of how industrialized it is. Sure. So it's the capital is Djibouti Djibouti, which is awesome to say. I know it really is. I can say it all day long. Seriously, yeah. Um, it's kind of shaped like a Pac-Man. So the mouth part of it opens up onto the Red Sea, which means we have incredible snorkeling and scuba diving. We're right on the ocean. Um, it is surrounded by Eritrea to the north, northwest, and then Ethiopia and Somalia, and then with Yemen, really 
um, close across the water. And it was a former French colony, got independence. One of the last countries in Africa to get independence was 1977. And the primary population is Somali, Afar, and Arab. And so those are also the kind of three main languages spoken, as well as French. Um, and the port is one of the main economic drivers. They have a huge shipping port. It's really strategically located right on the Horn. So any ships coming down the Red Sea and then going you know, over to India or down to South Africa are coming past Djibouti. And they also host a large number of foreign military bases. So the U.S. have a military base here, um, mm. France, Germany, Italy, Japan, China. There's even more. Wow. Hmm. Hmm. And, and what, what languages have you picked up since living there? And, and picked up meaning not maybe not fluent, but like you could get by if you needed to. I speak Somali and French. Okay. Did you take Somali classes or did you just pick it up by um, just by listening and, and being part of the culture? There's a few classes, but they're not very high quality, I could say. Okay. Um, so mostly just by learning. I had some books, but I, I studied linguistics in college, so I'm really naturally oh. interested in languages and just loved learning, picking up interesting things about color or vocabulary, just um, the way people see the world is very much expressed in the actual words they use. And so mm -hmm. I've loved studying it. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. So, so, okay. So, so the, so I was accurate about the, the nine mile, um, run across the desert, 9.3 mile run. Right. So I also feel like you walk out of your house or your school or wherever you are and you are just enveloped in heat. Is that <laughs> the case? And talk a little bit about like the, the, the seasons and running in the heat. Yeah. So it's hot year-round basically um to, this is kind of springtime late spring and today i went for a run at 5 30 p.m and it was about 100 degrees oh my it gosh felt, it felt kind of okay to me <laughs> <laughs> so we could say you're acclimatized i think you're you i think you would do well you know coming back here and running in the springtime but yeah i mean how what does that feel like well yesterday we came back from kenya my husband and i had traveled to kenya and when we stepped off the airplane there's always this very strong feeling of just being enveloped by heat like hugged by it wrapped around by it and you kind of use there's even a certain kind of smell to it um and to me it has become a feeling of home because we've been here for so long but it also can be pretty oppressive when you want to do things like run or um, just anything you do today. We had picture day at school today and I had to run up and down the stairs twice and sweat through my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, um, I mean, like, you just must be drenched in sweat when you get back. I mean, yeah. so tell us some anecdotes about that. Yeah, so between May, even April, up to October, it's pretty hot and humid most of the time. And uh, I am also a heavy sweater, but it's, I mean, everyone is just sweating a lot. So I can, when I'm pumping my arms when I run, there are drops of sweat just flying off as if it was rain. Like you can see the trail behind me as I go. <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes I've, I've taken photos of the sweat through my shoes. Like I'll be running and just squishing onto the sidewalk and there's like a pretty clear footprint that I leave behind. Oh my goodness. Wow. Wow. And yeah, sometimes I've had this experience of sweat. I've only have met one other person this has happened to. Um, sweat kind of foaming up and out through the uppers of my shoes. It's so weird, but like <laughs> a sea foam kind of look. It's, it's awesome. Wow, you have a picture of that? 
<laughs> um, I, by the time I tried to get one, by the time I got it, it had kind of all dissolved. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, and um, I mean, is there anything you do to mitigate it? I mean, obviously, I mean, does running in the morning even help or, you know, wearing white clothes or I mean, is it anything or you just kind of have to just be like, okay, this is my reality. I'm going to go run in hundred degrees. Yeah, I do try to run in the morning. I try to get back before 7 a.m. Um, or in the evening. At different times of year, the humidity is higher or lower morning or night. So this time of year, an evening run is better. I have a camelback and I freeze it ahead of time. Oh, clever. So it's like a solid pack of ice on my back. And within 20 minutes, it's melted enough to start sipping. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just really have to decide in my mind, like I'm going to be slower at this time of year. I'm going to have to take walking breaks and just preparing my mind for that helps me just to do it without feeling kind of ashamed or weak or something. Sure. Sure. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. All right. Well, what about the other one that's in my mind, of course, is that you're like, you know, and again, I realize that this is completely naive, but like you're like seeing elephants and giraffes and stuff on your, which I know is not the case, but so talk about just kind of what animals you have seen and, um, and yeah, just give us some African animal tales. <laughs> sure. Yeah, none of those big animals here in Djibouti. Um, I do often see camels while I'm running, but they're not wild. They're herded, herded camels, um, which is just really fun. And sometimes they'll, they kind of get scared by me or startled and they'll run away. And camels just look ridiculous when they run. <laughs> <laughs> I think the same of us, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> Um, I also see there's a lot of goats and sheep, which are also domesticated. Um, there's wild dogs, which are, they are wild and they are mean. And I just, I have a hard time with dogs um, because here there just aren't nice dogs. And so I have been chased a few times and even bitten once on the back of my leg. Mm. Um, and so a lot of times when I see a pack of dogs up ahead, they've been trained because local people don't like them either. And often Sadly, for Americans who love dogs, this sounds horrible, but, but we'll throw stones at the dogs. Um, and so all I have to do is bend down and look like I'm going to pick up a stone because I'm actually not going to throw it at them. But the dogs then will kind of scatter most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes there's snakes, which hasn't happened very often. But um, one time I was running and I, I didn't even see this snake. But afterwards, a taxi driver was coming past me and he was honking and honking his horn and I usually never look at the the cars because I'm kind of expecting a negative um, response to me, but he was so insistent that I stopped and um, he said, you just ran over the snake and it was like, I jumped over it or something and he hit it with his car and he then picked it up and had it in the footwell of his taxi and it was this pretty big snake. Um, (laughs) And so he saved me, I guess, from that. And now we see each other once in a while and he still cheers for me. It's pretty fun. Nice, nice. So in that answer, you kind of alluded to something else that um, certainly has crossed our minds. Um, you were saying that you don't pay much attention to the cars when you hear them honking because you think maybe they're going to give you a hard time. So, I mean, in a different culture like that, I can imagine that a woman running um, or even just a woman walking would, would get some harassment. So could you talk a bit about um, how you um, do or don't get accosted when you run? Sure. So this is something that is hard. It's hard to talk about because I don't like painting Djibouti in a negative light because there's so much positivity, but it's also something that needs to be talked about. And then it's hard to talk about just because it's painful. Um, But I have learned so much over the years that I have to be open about it. 
and it's not just me, it's local women also that are experiencing harassment. Um, so as a foreigner and as a woman running, it's not super common here. I'm also, um, it's a predominantly Muslim country. Mm -hmm. And so it's pretty free as far as I don't have to, I don't cover my head, but I don't wear shorts or tank tops. I wear pants and um, t-shirts. And so, um, you know, I just stick out basically. And yeah, there's been several incidents of harassment over the years. Most of it is comes in the form of looks or comments, which I understand and people don't expect me to speak Somali. And so when they say something like, um, you know, comment on my breasts or mock the the way that my hips are moving or even say things like mother effer or you're a whore. I mean, it gets pretty bad. Um, I understand that stuff because I speak Somali and they don't know it. Um, and then there's been a few times of pretty aggressive actual assault, I guess I would call it. It took me a while to put that word on it. But um, the worst was I was running in the morning. It was I was training for the for a longer run. I don't think I was training for a marathon, but so I was up early, just still before sunrise. It was a little bit dark, but it's so safe here in general that um, I felt really fine. And I was on this road, a main road, and a motorcycle drove past me and then circled around back behind me. And uh, before I could think to jump out of the way, the there was two people on the bike, two men, and one of them just punched me in the ass super hard. Mm. Um, and I just, my first reaction was just to, there I shouted out in Somali, Hey, this is not okay. What are you doing? But they zoomed off. And, um, and then I just stood there for a second, kind of shocked. Like it could have, that immediately I was struck by, it could have been worse. They could have hit me with the motorcycle. They could have grabbed me. You know, it could have been so much worse, but still I was so, it hurt for one thing. Yeah. Um, and I was angry and I felt ashamed and just all these kind of things poured over me and I thought I should just go home. I was about a half mile from my house. I had just started. I should just go home. And then I had this conscious thought that if I go home, I will just stay home. I don't know when I'll go out again because I don't know when I'll be able to get over this anger and fear and shame. And so I just like gathered up all my courage and I kept running and I did the same distance I'd planned on. Mm. And uh, when I got home, I told my husband all about it. And I mean, he's heard a lot of these stories from me and he let me cry and he um, just supported me and loved me. And, uh, and then I started, I kind of hid it for a while from friends, but I started talking about some more and especially with some of my local friends, they've shared some of their own experiences and we've just been able to kind of form some camaraderie and solidarity and support with each other, knowing that this is not okay and it happens and uh, we just need to keep speaking out against it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my gosh. Well, good, good for you for, first of all, um, well, both things for keeping going and also talking about it. Um, cause those are both really, uh, courageous acts <laughs> in and of themselves. Um, yeah, well, and so, I mean, zooming out a little bit, I mean, so it sounds, so, I mean, how often do you see female runners, uh, in Djibouti? Hmm. Like if you're out on, I mean, do you ever see them? Like, do you ever pass one and wave to her? <laughs> is that just like not happening? <laughs> yeah, it happens. I'm trying, I couldn't really put a number on it because it's rare enough, but it happens. Um, it happens, and, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then you, you ran the Somali, was it the Somali Marathon or is it Somaliland Marathon? Somaliland Marathon. Yeah. Okay, are those two different things, Somalia and Somaliland? Well, it depends on who you ask. According to the UN and map creators, it's one country, but the north, so Somaliland, 
has tried to be independent for a long time. They have their own currency, their own political system. You have to get a special visa just for that, not for Somalia, but for Somaliland to go there. Okay. Okay. So you ran the Somaliland Marathon and you wrote about it um, for what was it? Uh, Buzz? Deadspin. Deadspin, that's right. I knew it had some kind of spin to it. Buzz spin for Deadspin. And it's a, I mean, it's a great story and we'll link to it in the show notes because people should spend some time reading it. But I mean, it was a story about your marathon and it was also a story about women running um, in Thailand and how, like, I mean, I couldn't believe like the treadmill shut up, shut, shut off after 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't believe that women can run farther than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you could talk for hours about this, but kind of just give us, you know, give us kind of the, your perspective on it all. Yeah. So there's that one workout facility has about, I don't know, three or four treadmills. They do shut off uh, after 15 minutes. And there's um, also one place that I know of where girls play basketball. Um, Very small, low, you know, not high quality behind a wall. And then there's one other place that girls go once a week where they can play inside a wall guarded by armed soldiers to keep people out. Um, And that's in Somaliland. It's not like that here. But the idea is that women can't run, that we would damage our reproductive organs, or that once we've had children, we would never be able to run again just because our bodies would be so impacted by birth is really strong here. Um, I think it's slowly getting less, but it's still prevalent. And um, even before, so the day before the marathon, we had gone to the Ministry of Sports to register local runners. And the foreigner runners were all there and there were some media and news reporters. And these women were giving an interview for the Somaliland news. There are two Somalis and um, speaking in Somali. And they just started talking about how not even the foreigners were here to run marathons because women cannot run that far. Our uteruses will fall out or, you know, we'll faint. We'll do all, we just can't physically complete this distance. And I just wanted to grab the ladies and say, no, what are you talking about? And they even admitted to having been former athletes, but they only did, I think maybe 800. I can't remember now the distance they had done, but um, so it's just so frustrating to see women perpetuating this, the lie that we can't do it. Um, And then there, you know, Somali women, they just really don't. I think that's part of it is that they don't run that distance, but they're not encouraged to do it. And so one of my greatest dreams someday is to do the Somaliland Marathon again with a Somali woman, you know, doing the distance would just be incredible to me. Well, well, and talk about yourself running. What year did you run it? And kind of give us, because you had police cars with you. You had, I mean, it was a, it was a pretty bold move on your part um, (laughs) to to run it, don't you think? Yeah, um, I think so. I just kind of tried to put that out of my head um, and just do it. But yeah, it was 2018. uh, It was just last year. Just last year, right. I'm actually, I'm wearing my t-shirt right now, pumping me up for this talk. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice. Um, Yeah, I I had been there a whole week with the foreign runners doing some tourism and some promotion of the run. And um, I had personally, just some trauma still left from when we had lived there before, um, way back in 2003, and had to do that fleeing because of violence. Three foreigners were murdered, one of whom lived just a few blocks from our house. Um, And so, you know, I just think I had a lot of fear that I had sort of packaged up and put away. And then it kind of, it came open when I was there again. And so I have some selfies. I took videos of myself and uh, I can see in my face the tension and the fear because I 
was alone among the foreigners who could pick up on everything happening around us in terms of language and culture. And so there's a few incidences where, um, like once I got sort of surrounded by a bunch of men and they started shouting at me and um, I was separate from the rest of the group and another one of the group had to come and grab me out of that circle because it just was getting tense. Not that they were necessarily going to harm me, but it just was tense. And so, and I had exaggerated fear, I think, because of my personal history. So the day of the race came and I was already just exhausted. Um, sure. And we started running by, so, I, okay, even before the race started, um, some of the other foreigners had met with me and said, you know, we would like to run this race, but we don't think it's safe enough. So we're going to watch and see how things go for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So thank you, I guess. Um, And then this year, actually there was over 50 um, women who ran in a 10 K, not in the marathon, but associated 10 K. So once they saw, okay, people can do this and survive, we can do it too. Um, But in order to really make sure that the women were safe, there was only three of us who attempted the marathon um, and two of us finished. We did have police cars, so I ended up um, really struggling to finish. By the time I got to mile 18, I started vomiting. I, don't, I mm. felt really well trained, and um, I trained in the heat of Djibouti, and so I just felt like I could really, I was expecting even a PR, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is maybe, maybe ignorant of uh, what it would take, but all that trauma and exhaustion of the emotional week ahead of time, and then I think even some of the pressure of feeling like I am running for women, you know, I'm representing uh, just was too much and my body quit. And so around mile 18, I started vomiting. I started walking, kind of weaving across the road. Probably I should have stopped. Um, If any doctor would have looked at me, they definitely would have said, you need to stop. But I, there was no way that I was going to listen to that woman the the day before say, women can't do this. And then, you know, um, so they ended up assigning a police car specifically to me. Uh, it was full of several, I don't even remember how many, but several armed policemen. Um, and they just followed me, <laughs> watched me vomit, watched me weave the whole time. My husband was there too, and he knew what I thought I could do. And so when my time just got slower and slower and I wasn't getting back, he actually sent a taxi cab out to look for me to make sure that I was oh still on the course, that I hadn't you know, gotten (laughs) kidnapped or shot or passed out. You know, I mean, none of those things were really going to happen, but that was in our minds from our history. Um, So after the race finished, I remember getting into the car to go back to the hotel with the woman who had won, you know, come in first place, she beat me. So she won. (laughs) (laughs) And and the first thing I said to her was, well, we didn't get kidnapped. (laughs) She looked at me like I was crazy. And she said, did you really think that? And I thought about it and I was like, well, it was, it was possible, you know, and then of course it, it didn't happen. And the support that I felt whenever I would stop to vomit and then start to run again, people would just start clapping. And even some Somali women with flip-flops and just all covered in their beautiful dresses would run alongside with me for a while. And um, I mean, every personal encounter I had on that race was only positive. And so that just mm. really canceled out over time, all that other fear. And uh, I realized how exaggerated and um, melodramatic, I think, some of that fear was that I felt. Um, but it did feel also really powerful to finish that race there and to keep the dream of, of having more Somali women run with me. 
That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And so you, we understand you've set up a organization uh, that will help foster running among the female community of Djibouti, Girls Run 2. Talk to us about how you started that, how it's going, kind of maybe a standout story or two from it. Yeah, we started in 2008. So right after I had started running, I went to the stadium, the track to run a little bit with these other Americans. And um, we noticed these girls there who were running but getting injured and not running very well and no one wanted them to be in their races or on their teams and so we started this club girls run two with the idea of supporting the girls they needed to be on a team in order to participate in races or to go to them and so we would get them into the races and then they had to stay in school or participate in a job skills training program some of them were learning how to sew they were learning how to bake bread and hamburgers and pizza um, and other ones were making jewelry and then really keeping them in school has become um, even more of a focus now. And I mean, these girls are tough and they come from some of the lowest income areas around. So this year, the coach this year actually is one of our, she joined the team the second year, 2009, as just a young teenager. And now she's our coach, which is awesome. And she is going to university in the fall. Um, so also our first girl to make it all the way to university, which is really exciting. And mm. um, this year, the team is mostly from an especially low-income area. And these girls just come with, you know, no shoes. And they, they double up on their pants because their pants have a lot of holes in them. And so they don't want mm. to see through. Mm. Um, they're so petite um, just because they haven't had great nourishment or nutrition but they just love to come and participate in something and to have this coach. And I go out there also to once a week to help and um, to have someone cheer for them to say, I believe that you can do this and that you, the way you care for your body and your strength, it matters. And, um, and then to push them to excel and to achieve something is really, they just love it and they love the community of it. So this year I had sponsored um, a 10 K cancer fundraising run with a man who was running a 10 K in every country in the world. So he came to Djibouti and, and did this race and we had three girls from this team run the 10K with me and they had never run more than maybe, maybe two miles before at a time. And uh, so to finish that race with these girls, I mean, they were just almost in tears. They were so amazed that they could do it. It was awesome. That is so cool. That is so cool. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious, so and you put, um, one of the things you talked about your team this year, I mean, so there's like, I think you said there are 30 girls that are ages 10 to 15 and they've never been, had any schooling before, right? So do they come, they learn first about your program and then get into school or like, how does it work? Like, I'm just curious, like what the process is. Yeah, it's a good question. So um, I'm honestly not sure how the coach heard about this particular group of girls, but every fall the coach will go to a certain section of town and just okay. talk to the parents first because she really needs to make sure that parents will be comfortable with their girls doing this and get their permission and let them know, you know, this is what we're doing and this is what we'd like to focus on. So in the past, a lot of the girls had come from her neighborhood or from the neighborhood of the previous coach where families knew that person, knew the, the coach's character and trusted her. Um, and I think this year the coaches heard about these girls that were living in a kind of across the street down this hill in a different section and um, went there and then she talked to the parents told them about how we'd like to get the girls into school, um, that we would provide the training and the shoes and the you know, shirt for the girls, and then also um, the money they would need to travel to any races if they happen outside the city or even in the city, but away from their section. 
And so she had the support of the family. And then once um, a few families in, a, in that section agreed and their girls started coming, then other girls thought, oh, hey, that looks interesting. And then more started joining as well. And then the coach found the, a school that would take these girls who, yeah, some of them, some of them can't even write their name or, uh, you know, just have never been in school before ever. So she had to find schools that were willing to take girls like that and really could focus on them. And uh, the, you know, the expectations aren't super high that they would necessarily get to university, but even just that they could learn how to read, how to write, um, how to do basic math skills. So if they could do, you know, some help, something helpful economically in the future and know how to count the math. Hmm. And so do you see, do you see, I mean, is this going to, I mean, so 30 girls in your program right now, I mean, is that going to kind of, is that your, do you see it growing or is it like that, is that kind of where a good spot for you guys? That's a, that's a good spot. Much more than that. And it's hard for the coach to manage because she has to really push the girls to stay in school. So a lot of her practices in the afternoon, a lot of her mornings are spent making sure the girls are in class, making sure mm -hmm. they're, they're healthy. If some of them have significant health problems, she'll take them to the doctor. Um, wow. we've had some teeth problems we've helped get fixed. One girl, a couple of years ago on the team, um, had a eye that had been pierced by a thorn years before. And it started, the thorn just got lodged in her eyeball and she went blind, but the, mm. it never had gotten taken care of and it started to get infected and it was really painful. And so the coach was able to help her get, um, get that removed and actually replace it with a glass eye. So things like that just take a lot of time for the coach. Um, sure. Just can't be many more than that. And a lot of girls don't continue from year to year. Um, some do, but not mm -hmm. all of them. So next year I expect it'll be maybe half will turn over. Nice. Um, well, before we get to kind of uh, for the, the wrap up of this, I'm curious, what's, what's next on your running calendar? Like, are you coming back to the Twin Cities to run anything or what, what do you have if you have an event on the calendar? I don't have anything on the calendar officially, but I have one in my mind. Uh huh. It's, it's unspecific, but um, I was in September last year, 2018, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and um, had surgery in November. My thyroid was removed and then I had treatment in January and now I'm still trying to figure out the medication and how it feels and if it's all gone and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not, feeling super 100% with running specifically yet. Sure. And so actually someone on um, commented and I would love, I'm going to put this out there in the podcast that if other people have learned how to run and train, especially for marathons without a thyroid, I would love to hear how they did it and how it felt. Um, I, I've Googled and Googled and Googled and can't find great help. Um, so anyway, just putting it out there. Well, so, so one, I do know somebody, and she's probably listening to this, Cynthia Vissers, who's one of our BAM ambassadors. Awesome. And um, she, I know that she's dealt with that a lot, so I will connect you two over email. So Cynthia, be, look, be looking in your inbox. Great. That's so, that's so great. Um, so I would love to do a marathon at some point. Um, kind of my, I thought maybe the Somaliland marathon would be my last, but I would love to do it again. That one with a Somali woman or just another marathon, kind of my suck at cancer you know, sort of race. So that's in my future at some point. Um, so yeah, so, so um, to close things out, Rachel, I mean, let's, so one of the things that you put in the document that you sent me, um, you talked about how any kind of lasting change has to come from within. And um, I thought that was such a perfect statement for both, um, like, you know, you trying to make a change in 
the area that you're living in. And also just, I think it also applies to runners, right? Um, and so, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that and, um, and kind of where you see yourself positioned as far as making a change in um, how people think about female running in, in the part of Africa that you're in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think it has to, to make a, a real change culturally, locally, it has to come from locals. I can set an example and, um, you know, I can run after giving birth and I can still get pregnant after I run, but that doesn't communicate a lot because I'm so separate. As much as I try to integrate, I'm just different and I never will be local. Um, but I can encourage, I can be like a bridge, you know, to encourage the women and the girls. And when they start to recognize that this is possible, that this is joy-giving and life-giving and um, healthy, that they're not going to harm themselves, that they're, um, they can still get pregnant. And um, once they start to own that and spread it and share it, um, I think that's how change can actually start to happen. And so I feel like uh, by, by doing what I do, it's both for my own self, but it's also to encourage those few women who will catch catch that vision and then to encourage them to really take it locally and to adapt it how they need to, to adapt the clothing, how, what's appropriate for, you know, a local woman to wear while running, um, to adapt it to like right now we're in the month of Ramadan where Muslims are fasting from first light until sunset from all food and all water, even, even in this heat, which is hard. Mm. Um, wow. so, so what does it look like to be a runner, a local runner in that? in that context. Um, and so I just, I feel like I'm able to encourage them, but then they really need to adapt and make running jabushin, make it for themselves. Mm. That's fantastic. I love you saying that you want to be like a bridge for girls and women. That's wonderful. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing with us, Rachel. This was really powerful. Thank you for having me. I love talking with you guys. I love the podcast. Thanks. It's super interesting. And I did want to say one more thing. I know that that's, that's how we should end. So cement that, cement that in your brain. You can be the bridge for running. Um, but then I also liked what you talked about as far as just encouraging people to run um, on trips, on an international trip. And I think that that's, there's some nice advice there. So, I mean, if I'm headed to, you know, um, a country where I'm not sure about what the culture is as far as um, female and or women and running, what, what kind of advice do you have for people to... Um, kind of get, get out and do what they want to do, but also be respectful of the culture. Mm -hmm. I definitely encourage people to do it. It's so powerful of an experience to experience a country through your feet and through um, the slower pace of running or walking. Um, so I encourage you to do it, but yeah, you need to be safe. So I did not run in Somaliland outside of the race. I've been there before and I have not run except for inside the, the gym that's set up just for women. Um, I went for a walk there, but I walked with my husband, which was what we were told to do by other foreigners who lived there. And I was fully covered. So, you know, you really have to be sensitive to context. That's an extreme context. Sure. Otherwise, I would encourage people just to ask, you know, if you're at a hotel or if you're at an Airbnb, ask someone, is it okay? And then um, respect the local clothing modesty ideas. You don't have to go all the way to an extreme, but just be respectful um, I encourage people to not wear headphones when you're running in a new place, partly so that you can be safe, but also just to experience it. All the other sounds and things that are part of the sensory experience, that's really, really fun. Um, and uh, 
bring a phone, you know, ask someone about routes, where it might be safe to go and then just get out there and do it and enjoy it. And, and Oh, one more thing is to, to really give the place the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I have run in places where people look at me with strange looks and it would be super easy to judge that and feel like, Oh, this place is not welcoming or these people don't support running. Um, but it's most likely not true. Um, I think a lot of times our, our human bent is to think something negative, especially if we're in a foreign place that we're unfamiliar with and it just feels like people are staring at us. Um, they might be, but they might be thinking, wow, that's awesome. I should try that. Um, mm -hmm. And you might be part of changing someone's perception. And so um, give the place the benefit of the doubt and uh, enjoy it and get out there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Rachel, for joining us. Good luck um, as you um, navigate your new, your new normal, um, figuring out how to find your running groove again after cancer. I'm glad that that is uh, in a chapter in your past. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, and, and look for an email soon. Um, so if you've got a Mother Runner of the Month to nominate, head to another Mother Runner and look in, and look in the inside AMR for the nomination form. Um, and we'll also link to Rachel's information, her, um, her blog, her Instagram, um, and that, like I said, that Deadspin story um, in the show notes. Uh, because I don't know about you, but I can't spell Djibouti um, to save my life. And so I want to make sure that people can find it. So, um, so those will be in the show notes if you're listening here. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, you too. Thanks. <laughs>